Welcome to another impactful message from Cornerstone Church, where we truly believe there is one hope for every heart, Jesus Christ. If you'd like to check out more resources or view video of this sermon, visit us online at cornerstonerome.com. Well, let's open our Bibles to Ezekiel. I love the fact that we're going through this, the, uh, book, the whole Bible this year. And Ezekiel had a tough life. He was taken, he was into captivity when he was 15 years old. He was a contemporary of Daniel, experienced a lot of those things that Daniel experienced, and he lived and wrote in the midst of catastrophe. And catastrophe strikes, and our world falls apart, and people take one of two options. There's denial, and and this has happened not just in our time, but uh, denial goes for all the conspiracy theories and I have all of these fancy reasons. I had a guy working for me a few weeks ago, and he, he said, well, I've done some research. Well, what he meant is he'd been on his computer, and uh, now he's an expert, uh, and he has a prescription for everything. Uh, denial. And then there's despair. That's the people who just give up. They're unwilling to do anything and conclude that, that life for all intents and purposes is over. And you have the doom and gloom people. And in the midst of captivity, God raised up Ezekiel to be his voice and to speak on his behalf to a nation that was staggering back and forth between those extremes, denial and despair. And he expressed words of hope that the nation needed to hear. And so God raised up Ezekiel to speak to the nation in the midst of the 6th century invasion of Israel by Babylon. And when others were closing their eyes and refusing to see Ezekiel saw. He saw, if you've read this, he saw weird stuff. I mean, you look at uh, Ezekiel's life and you look at what he experienced and you say, "Uh, Lord, you can just leave me out of that. (laughs) I I don't need any of that because I don't know if I could handle it. Wheel within a wheel and um, the voice, face of an animal in your armpit and all kinds of uh, bizarre and unforgettable images. But In the midst of all that, there was the message that God was at work in the midst of the chaos. And as crazy as those visions looked, God could make sense out of them. And he could bring order out of that craziness and that chaos. And so he had that message for Ezekiel. And God assigned Ezekiel to dramatically portray Israel's plight. If you look in chapter 3, verse 16, Ezekiel is described as a watchman. It says, at the end of seven days, the word of the Lord came to me, son of man, I've made you a watchman for the house of Israel. Now, this was a term they would understand. This is the guy in the tower on the wall who's watching out for enemies coming in or for uh, any kind of threat to the city. This is the shepherd who goes up on a high place and uh, gets perspective so that he can see for a long ways. And if bad weather's coming in, he can go and warn the rest of the shepherds. Or if the wolves are coming, uh, he can warn them and they can be prepared to fight off the, the enemy. If strangers are coming into the area, the watchman warns them. And one of the major purposes and jobs of the watchman was to warn. And so the prophets often warned Israel of what was going to happen to them and, uh, and what was coming in the days ahead. So he says, I've made you a watchman for the house of Israel. So hear the word I speak and give them warning from me. 
When I say to a wicked man, you will surely die, and you do not warn him or speak out to dissuade him from his evil ways in order to save his life, that wicked man will die for his sin, but you will have saved yourself. So he's saying, hey, Ezekiel, this job isn't optional. You're going to be pronouncing death for some people. You're going to be warning them about impending doom. <clears throat> and the fact is that either we confront, confront the evil that's around us or we condone it and we're overcome by it. In chapter 4, Ezekiel was instructed to act out the coming siege against Jerusalem and he laid on his side for 390 days, more than a year, laying in the dirt with little toy Jerusalem in front of him. Uh, clay tablets and clay models of the city, uh, again predicting the uh, coming doom. And then 40 more days on the other side with predictions against Judah. Uh, and so he's acting really strangely. In chapter 5, he's commanded to shave his hair and beard as a sign of mourning and to symbolically burn the hair in various uh, locations around Jerusalem to warn Israel that God's judgment was coming against them. Chapter 12, uh, he packed all his belongings in a bedroll and he went to the wall of the city and he dug a hole through the wall telling the people, this is what you're going to do. You're going to be so desperate to get out of here that you'll dig holes through the wall to escape the very city that you uh, take such pride in. <clears throat> in chapter 24, Ezekiel's wife dies and he's not allowed to mourn. Uh, and it was a message to the nation that Israel had lost her glory and no one was warning. And so uh, the prophet had uh, somehow had no official role in Israel. He wasn't a priest. He wasn't a king. He wasn't a government official. He was a voice. And somehow he had to get people to listen to him. And so there's a process of, of what and why and eventually who. And the what came when they did these bizarre things. Isaiah ran around naked for a long time uh, at God's command. And here Ezekiel, people had to ask him, what are you doing? You've been out here for 90 days. Yeah, I'm not through yet. Got a long time to go. Uh, and he gets, finally gets done and he gets himself cleaned up and they say, what are you going to do? He said, well, I'm going to lay on the other side now. And they go, what? And so the response to a prophet often is that, what? That exasperated question that says, what's wrong with you? And if you haven't heard it yet, you're probably not living out your Christian faith victoriously in the presence of unbelievers. Because a Christian life lived authentically demands questions. It causes people to say, what's wrong with you? What? And why are you doing this? And eventually, who? I thought of some examples. Years ago, I went to a meeting. There was a big... Uh, dispute in Oregon there in Eugene where we lived over a cross. There's a lighted cross on the hill above the city. And some well-meaning, well, maybe not so well-meaning uh, people, I could call them liberals, I don't know what to call them, but these people had decided the cross had to go, that it wasn't right for there to be a lighted cross over the city of Eugene because that kind of proclaimed that it was a Christian nation and a Christian city, and they didn't like that. And so it ended up before the city council, and there was a public hearing, and I went to it. And they argued back and forth, and finally the, the people who were proponents of keeping it came up with a brilliant solution. They said, let's call it a war memorial. And so instead of uh, applying to have a cross up there representing Jesus, well, let's just call it a war memorial. Then nobody can bother it. And finally, one elderly man in the audience, so I found out later, owned the land where the cross was. 
asked to speak. He owned uh, Eugene Sand and Gravel. And he said, here's what's going on tonight. There's no right way to do a wrong thing. And this is wrong. Meeting was over. I mean, there's, there's times where yammering back and forth goes on, and eventually the Spirit of God just speaks. And uh, in a public forum that night, I heard the voice of God. And so did the council. They, <laughs> they closed it up real quick. We had a similar experience in Anchorage. One of our church members was on the city council, and she said, we need people to go down to the council hearing because they're uh, deliberating about a liquor license. They're going to they're gonna keep a liquor license for a horrible, nasty old bar down on 4th Avenue, the hub, and they're going to allow several more, and we've already got more liquor licenses let in the city than the law allows. So we need people to go down there. So I said, all right. In church, I announced that we're going to go to the city council. We don't want you to say you're from Faith Christian. We don't want you to say you're a Christian. We just want you to go as citizens of the city of Anchorage and say, please enforce the law. And so one after the other packed the room. One after another, these people simply said, I'm here. I love my city. I want you to to enforce the law. Another one said, it's a good law, and we need to obey it, and we need to enforce it. Another guy said, I know it's the goal of the liquor lobby to have liquor outlets in the city of Anchorage within staggering distance of one another. (laughs) It was over. (laughs) The hearing was over. I mean, they responded. Everybody cracked up, even the people who were in favor of the... And when it was all over, the liquor lobby lawyer turned to the people who was with him and said, what the blank just happened here? And I overheard him, and I knew. What happened here is that the Holy Spirit came to the meeting in the presence of his people. And the voice of the prophet spoke, because that's exactly what was happening. Liquor licenses were let within a block or two of each other all over the city, within staggering distance. Our daughter, when she was 15 years old, had a friend come to her, also 15 years old, and said, I'm pregnant. Tammy said, how could you do that? to your parents and to God, to to me. She said, I didn't mean to. She said, no, you didn't mean not to. The voice of God speaking through a friend. I went to a hearing, a meeting in Southern California. It was about AIDS in Rwanda. There was a gathering of people from all over the world talking about what to do about the AIDS epidemic in Africa. And there happened to be a junior senator there named Barack Obama and Sam Brownback. They were both running for president at that point. And so the place was packed with media. And they were talking about the need to, to, to educate the people of Africa to use protection. We'll just leave it at that so your kids don't ask you, what's that? Um, and that was pro- the, the main thing that was being proposed. And then Franklin Graham, who happened to also be there, spoke. Very briefly, he said, this is a church. Most of you are pastors. I assume that most of you are believers. He said, can you imagine Jesus telling the the woman caught in adultery, go and sin no more and be sure you use protection from now on? It was over and the media left. (laughs) It was the Spirit of God 
speaking through a servant of God. And we need to pray that God will raise up more and more prophets in our country who can speak truth to power and who can speak truth to the, to the government, which is us, and confront the evil that has come into our nation over time. We are called, each one, to, be, to live prophetic lives. When you accept Jesus as your Lord and you begin to follow him, you're called to lead a prophetic life. First Peter three fifteen and 16 says, But in your heart, set apart Christ as Lord. And listen to this. Always be prepared to give an answer. What does that mean? Somebody's asking questions. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience so that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. Now, I think often we get the idea of a prophet being this guy that's raging or raving and kind of crazy. Uh, We used to, when we first went to Eugene, there was a guy that went to the campus and screamed at the students and called them names and called himself Holy Hubert. And so my, my idea of a prophet for years was Holy Hubert. I don't want to be Holy Hubert. That's not what Peter's advocating. He says, no, simply live a life that calls for questions. And then when someone asks the question, give them a response with gentleness and reverence and lead them to the who question. You see, the, the what question is, why are you doing that? What's bizarre? Then, then there's the question, why? Why are you acting the way you're acting? But eventually it has to come down to who. For Ezekiel, the who was a sovereign God. And over and over again in the book of Ezekiel, he calls God sovereign. Why is that important? Well, sovereign means he's reigning over the situation. The situation is not out of his control. The situation is not in the control of the pagan kings that are coming against us. The world is not under the control of the virus. The world is not under the control of the, the uh, what's that organization that says whether you wear a mask or not wear a mask, the CDC. It, the world is under the control of a sovereign God. And we live in a world that needs authentic people who live such a way that others ask questions and can say, well, I act the way I do because I believe that God's in charge and that he has a plan and a purpose for all this and he's going to unfold his purpose as time goes on. For our time, the answer is Jesus. When the question is, what are you doing? Why are you doing it? Why do you behave that way? Why don't you act like the rest of us? The answer is, well, because I'm, I'm committed to follow Jesus. And he's called me to live this way and to do the things that you're questioning. The prophetic message always ultimately points to Jesus. How many of you saw the reports about the 82-year-old lady who was watching church at home because of the pandemic? And she dressed to the nines. I mean, hat, uh, silk dress, beautiful clothes. And she got attention on, on uh, I don't know how many hits or whatever you call it. Um, but it was this unusual behavior. And so people said, what are you doing? You could watch, you could watch the service in your pajamas. You're watching in your living room. She said, I'm Sunday morning is my time to worship God. Sunday morning is my time to dress. I don't dress for you. I don't even dress for me. I dress for him. 
And so her insistence on dressing up became something that had to be challenged. And someone said, why do you behave the way you Why? How can it make any difference? You could do that in your pajamas. Oh, no, I couldn't. Because I come into the presence of the sovereign God. I come to worship Jesus. And so that dictated her behavior. She put on her best Sunday go-to-meeting clothes and then went in the living room. But she was going to meeting, whether she went to the church building or not, she was going to the meeting because she had a meeting with Jesus. Ezekiel's perspective on who was the sovereign God who's above the fray, the on-time, and owner of everything. Remember the recession in 2008? Seems like a small issue now. The housing market collapsed. Um, Everything was gloom and doom. They were predicting all kinds of horrible things for the economy. And I got up on Sunday morning and said, Hey, folks, there's a recession. Everybody's talking about it. I'm here to tell you here at Faith Christian, we're not participating. And every Sunday for a couple of years, I'd start the service by pulling my wallet out, getting out a dollar bill and saying, read the money. What does the money say? In God we trust. You see, people lost perspective. You see, we don't trust in the housing market. We don't trust in the government. We don't trust in the Fed. In God we trust. And I said, we're not changing our missions budget. We're not changing our church budget. We're not changing a thing. And I'm claiming that none of you are going to lose your job. None of you are going to lose your house because we're not participating. And we didn't. And none of those bad things happened. Many of these uh, calamities in our world are self-fulfilling. And they're false prophets speaking something that God didn't call them to speak. And there's times where we're called out to say, no, no, no. You can have a recession if you want, but I'm not participating. I don't want to be any part of it. Prophets give perspective. Being a prophet or a watchman involves forth-telling, speaking forth the message of God, and foretelling, predicting the future. <clears throat> and in Isaiah, when we read that last week, he gives the reason. He says, I want people to be able in years to come to look at these prophecies and know that there's a God in Israel. And there was one of the purposes for predicting the future didn't, doesn't benefit the people who are alive or that he's speaking to. It was adding to an overall plan that comes down through the centuries with God's message. <clears throat> and so in Ezekiel 26, Ezekiel issued prophecies against Tyre and Edom and Egypt. And the prophecies came true with stunning accuracy in every detail. Look at chapter 26 of Ezekiel, the prophecy against Tyre. And there's two main kingdoms coming against Israel at that time, Babylon and Tyre. And so he speaks this prophecy against Tyre. And he says, uh, verse 3, this is what the sovereign Lord says. I am against you, O Tyre, and I'll bring many nations against you like the sea casting its waves. So there's prophecy number one. Many nations will come against you. Prophecy number two, uh, they will destroy the walls of Tyre and pull down her towers, and I'll scrape away her rubble and make her a bare rock. So they're going to become a bare rock. Out in the sea, she will become a place to spread fish nets. For I have spoken, declares the Lord. Number three, place to, to spread fish nets. She'll become plunder for the nations... 
and her settlements on the mainlands will be ravaged by the sword, and they will know that I am the Lord. When you get down to the end of it, verse 12 says, They will plunder your wealth and loot your merchandise. They'll break down your walls and demolish your fine houses and throw your stones, timber, and rubble into the sea. I'll put an end to your noisy songs and the music of your harps will be heard no more. I'll make you a bare rock and you'll become a place to spread fish nets and you'll never be rebuilt. And so there was a prophecy given against Tyre for all time. You'll never be rebuilt. So here we are, almost 3,000 years later. Guess what? You can go to Tyre today and you'll see fishermen spreading their nets out on a rock to dry because the nations came against Tyre and Tyre thought they were really smart. They had an island just offshore. So they tore down their own city and put the rubble in the sea and built a causeway out to the island. And then all they had to defend was that one access to the island. Well, Alexander the Great eventually came, one of those many nations that came against it. And he uh, destroyed the causeway, scraped the whole place. Uh, And so here you have a, a good harbor uh, with an abundant water supply right on the Mediterranean Sea. It's never been rebuilt. People look at it and say, well, that doesn't make any sense. Yeah, it does. God spoke. And God said, you'll never be rebuilt. And it won't. Same prophecy was made against Jericho. And there were several attempts to rebuild Jericho. But in that curse, God had said, Jericho will never be rebuilt, and if anybody tries it, they'll lose their firstborn son. About three of them lost their firstborn son to these strange diseases and decided maybe they better listen. And so uh, Ezekiel is given a, a prophecy to foretell the future, to give credibility, and whose benefit is that for? It wasn't for the people of his time, it's for us. So that we can look at the prophecy and we can see the place and we can say 3,000 years ago, God knew what was going on. 3,000 years ago, God was in control. 3,000 years ago, there was nothing that surprised him ever. And nothing has changed. We have a sovereign God. It's impossible to read this book and see the big picture it's dealing with without seeing parallels to our country today. We're in the midst of catastrophe, and all around us the responses are either denial or despair. Morally, we're experiencing catastrophe. There's, there's decline in every way that morality can be measured. It's been years. So for years, almost everyone who came to get married were living together. Even believers... And they eventually knew they'd better be serious if they're coming to ask me because I had some questions for them and the questions got passed around. Are you a believer? Yes. Are you following Jesus in your life? Yes. Are you living together? Yes. Wait a minute. How can she trust you to be faithful to her if you're unfaithful to Jesus? How can he trust you to be faithful to him if you're unfaithful to Jesus? Whoa, it gets real quiet when you say that. That's a prophetic message. The popular culture is becoming more and more profane and sex-crazed and godless. Rarely does a week go by in America without some kind of crazy shooting. 
There has to be a time when people start asking the appropriate question. What is going on? What's wrong? What can be done to fix this? And we know the answers. Spiritually, America is more and more being identified as a post-Christian nation. And we can no longer assume that people have the uh, spiritual compass provided by our culture as a Judeo-Christian heritage. Financially, our national debt is staggering. And we just keep adding to it because that's the solution. A trillion of this and a trillion of that and a few more trillion for it. And, and it's supposed to be the solution. We have that same message. Read the money. Read the money before it has Chinese pictures on it. We're headed the wrong direction. Culturally, we're in trouble. By the year 2030, Europe will be a Muslim continent. Australia will be a Muslim nation. And Canada's population will have a Muslim majority. In 1970, the United States had 100,000 Muslim residents. Do you know how many it is now? Nine million. What's going on? Well, they're, I'm not dogging them. They share their faith. They live their faith. They live consistently with their faith. They rear their children to live their faith. And in the meantime, Christians are sitting back and just watching it happen. The nation with a rich heritage of sending missionaries to all parts of the globe is now a target of missionaries from the third world to come here. What can be done? Is it too late? Should we despair? No, there's rays of hope. The existence of the book of Ezekiel and the other books of prophecy should give us hope. God didn't just let them go. He sent a prophet. And he did all these bizarre things to try to reach them. And all those things were saying on God's behalf, I love you. I'm here for you. I will receive you back. I'll welcome you if you'll just turn your hearts toward me. And Ezekiel has a prophecy of Israel turning to God and having new hearts. And that's the hope. And this place, this family is a part of that hope as we share our faith with others. There's an encouraging verse in the middle of the book. Ezekiel 22, verses 30 and 31. I looked for a man among them who would build up the wall and stand before me in the gap on behalf of Israel so I would not have to destroy it. You hear God's heart? I don't want to have to destroy it. In order to be me, in order to be just, I have to bring judgment, but I don't want to. I don't enjoy it. It's not something I look forward to. I found no man. So I'll pour out my wrath on them and consume them with fiery anger. Bring down their, on their own heads all they have done, declares the sovereign Lord. Did you catch this? What God is saying is one person could make the difference. I looked for one man, one person. Think of the power of one person, one person who prays. In Second Chronicles 16, 9, it says, The eyes of the Lord range throughout the earth to strengthen those whose hearts are fully committed to him so that he may strongly support them. He's still looking for watchmen, watchwomen, still looking for people who will stand up and speak on his behalf. Nehemiah stepped into the gap, one man, 
cupbearer to the king. And God used him to mend the wall of Jerusalem. And one man who prayed repaired a problem in 55 days that had existed for 120 years. Moses stood in the gap. Psalm 106 says they forgot the God who saved them, but he, <clears throat> so he said he would destroy them, but not, had not Moses, his chosen one, stood in the breach before him to keep his wrath from destroying them. The turning point in history throughout the Bible is one person. Eve said to Adam, eat this. And he said, oh, okay. <laughs> and history was changed. Moses accepted the challenge. What's that in your hand? And he used that rod to part the waters and to lead Israel into their promised land. Hannah prayed without even moving her lips. And a a prophet was born and a war was won that had been a chronic problem for centuries. Esther stepped up for such a time as this and saved her people. A young boy named David offered himself in his sling in, in in a battle with impossible odds. And God honored him. Deborah offered herself to God and became a battle strategist and a general and a judge, averting disaster at a crucial time in Israel's history. The record of Scripture is the record of ordinary people being used by an extraordinary God. Ordinary people partnering with a sovereign God. And the message of Ezekiel, it's got lots of messages, but one of the main ones is one person can make a difference. In Ezekiel's day, God was just looking for one person that would stand in the gap, and he still is. So the question is this, will you step up and stand up and speak up? Because God is looking for people he can strongly support. Rich Stearns, president of World Vision tells uh, about being in Africa and they're in a village and they're getting ready to leave the village. It was one of those places where they'd been distributing food and help. And a young mother ran up to the car. His car window was open. They're waving goodbye to people. And she shoved her baby through the car window into his arms and said, my baby, I want my baby to live. Take my baby. Broke his heart. He shoved the baby back through the window and said, I can't I can't help you. can't help you. He got home to Seattle, where he lives, and he told that story to his family and told them how hard it was for him to give that baby back to the mama. But he said, but we can't help them all. And his 10-year-old spoke with the voice of God and said, but you could have helped that one. And the child began to cry and said, Daddy, we can help. He put his staff to work and they went to, back to Africa and they found that little boy and they found his mama. And now, many years later, he's grown. And it was the voice of God that saved his life. A prophetic voice speaking through a 10-year-old child saying, no, we can't help them all, but we can help that one. And daddy, we have to help that one. And that child became a, a kind of an unofficial member of their family. Will you ask God, our sovereign God, to use you to fill a gap in your family, in your community, in your school, in your friendships, just to fill a gap and speak truth? Will you say, I'm only one, but I will be one that you can count on to stand in the gap? Stand with me. 
And let's, let's stand together and say to God, you can count on us. We're, we're not just standing in the auditorium. We're not just standing at church. We're standing in the gap. And we want to be the people who, whose lives cause others to say, what? You give, you give your money to that church? You go to that church even with the pandemic? What? You don't live together before you're married? What? You, you know, all those questions. And then with the, the why, you give that simple answer that says the answer is Jesus. Pray with me. In fact, just uh, let's do like we do a lot of times and I'll pray a phrase and you say it. We'll pray it together. Dear God, we acknowledge you as sovereign. And we acknowledge Jesus as Lord. And we invite anyone here who hasn't accepted him to follow Jesus. Help each of us, Lord, to follow you follow Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen. If today's message blessed you, we want to encourage you to take a moment and share this podcast with a friend. Remember, there's one hope for every heart, and that's Jesus. See you next time.